Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Felicity Nelson. And I'm Frenton Crimmins. And today we're joined by our colleague and fellow journalist, Ruby Prosser-Scully. Hi, Ruby. Hello. So reading your feature this week, I was starting to wonder slash worry that we're employing a conspiracy theorist. Um, is that true, Ruby? Not quite, but uh, I do think it's worth asking questions. You know, we have the uh, US politicians, we've got... Uh, Iran, we have Chinese officials all suggesting that coronavirus might be a man-made virus. And it's a funny thing to bring up, Ruby. I mean, I just assume it's all nonsense. Um, It's quite shocking what comes out of the US at the best (laughs) of times lately. But we do know that there are just heaps and heaps now of these wild, wonderful conspiracy theories out there, uh, basically that this is a monster virus that's come out of labs or whatever it be. And that's not all from the mouth of Trump, as you've said. What particularly made you look into this and give it a second glance? Well, I was actually looking into bioterrorism and, you know, we have this amazing gene editing technology that some people for many years now have sort of been warning about, Uh, its potential use as uh, a weapon and uh, as a way of sort of threatening our health and well-being. And so I was looking into that and, you know, was thinking about this coronavirus thing and uh, wondering, I guess it made me wonder, you know, why are scientists so sure that this couldn't have been synthetically designed? And where do you fall on this question, Ruby? Is there a chance that COVID-19 is human-made? Maybe. But it's also pretty unlikely with the tools that we have today. This is a a virus that scientists kind of the world over have scrutinised in recent months, poured over it, looked at it from every angle, um, experts in so many different fields of science. Uh, And at this stage, all signs point to no. But how can they know? Well, it's actually really fascinating to look into the science of this. So... You can think of it like archaeologists. They look at fossils and they search for clues about a creature's evolution. In a similar way, virologists closely study the genetic code to sort of see how it evolved and what steps it took to get to where it is now. So our genetic code and this virus's is only made up of four bases. That's A's, G's, T's and C's. And to see how the coronavirus evolved, what they did was they sequenced its genome And they compared it to other viruses uh, that were similar to it to find out what it's most closely related to. So what you do is when you have a lot of these sequences to compare, you look at it and you say, okay, these are all clustered together. They're the most similar. You know, there's a few changes here and here. Uh, And then you look at other ones and you say that, well, they're a bit further apart. They've got some more changes in them. And then they start piecing it together. They sort of put them on what's called a phylogenetic tree, which basically looks like an ancestry tree to find out, okay, well, this virus mostly evolved, most likely evolved from that one. And this is probably where they split off and diverge from each other. So, so far, the closest relative scientists have found to SARS-CoV-2, which is the one responsible for our current pandemic, is found in horseshoe bats. And it's called Bat-CoV R-A-T-G-1-3. The most important major difference for this uh, coronavirus is that it has this part that makes it especially effective uh, at infecting humans, and that's its spike protein. Okay, tell us uh, about a spike protein. What's that, Ruby? Okay, so the spike protein helps the virus dock onto cells, and that's where it sort of gets in and it helps uh, the virus infect our cells. 
And what's really crazy about this one and what makes it really cool and different is its receptor binding domain on the spike protein. So that's a a bit of a long and technical kind of phrase for it, but basically it has these tweaks on it that make it a lot better at binding to these ACE2 receptors, which are in our cells, um, than other coronaviruses like we've seen with the first SARS virus. Um, It can also work on a range of cells and tissues in our body. So it's not just limited to one organ or one part of our body, again, making it much more dangerous for us. And lastly, uh, this spike protein can be coated in sugar molecules, which is called a glycan shield, and that helps the virus hide from our body's immune systems. And so the fact that it has these weird little tweaks that make it so good at infecting us and hurting us is what makes people think that it's been especially designed as a weapon. Has that got something to do with the ACE2 receptor? Is that a different thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So so that uh, spike protein is what uh, is really good. It has a, a great affinity. Um, so it's basically, if you think about it like a lock and key kind of mechanism, it has a key uh, and the key is very well shaped to the ACE2 receptor. So... If we look at what makes this coronavirus special, what actually, why do people think that it could be artificially modified? Well, I guess they look at that and they sort of say, this is, this is really good at its job. (laughs) How could this have occurred naturally? Why is it so much better than the first SARS? Um, And, you know, it kind of makes sense if you look at the incredible leaps and bounds that gene editing technology has made to think. Well, why, why couldn't it? You know, there are malicious actors out there. There's certainly had um, political and economic uh, repercussions that have spread throughout the world many times over. So, you know, why wouldn't someone um, deploy this kind of thing potentially as a weapon when we know that governments are up to all sorts of shady things like cyber attacks and that kind of thing? But, you know, in talking to scientists, there's something interesting that comes up when you look at this. And one of the things is that it just doesn't, there are too many gaps and too many things that make it uh, a really bad idea from a scientist's perspective. Yeah, so reading your story, it seemed like, um, you know, like if it was created in a lab, it should have grubby fingerprints all over it. Like you should be able to tell that there was a human behind it, right? And that's sort of what you went through. Do you want to talk us through some of that? Like what what are some of the... Um, indications that should be there if it was man-made and and why are they not there for this particular virus? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're a scientist and you're designing a virus, a bioweapon, the first thing you need to do is you need an existing template. So you don't just assemble this kind of thing from nothing in the lab. This is the sort of thing where basically you take another virus, something similar, and you use that as a, a backbone. And so you make a couple of tweaks here and there that you think are going to make it uh, a bit more effective, a bit more uh, infective or more dangerous, better at transmitting, whatever it is that you want from this new virus. So if this really was a designed, an artificially designed virus, basically what you would expect is that they would choose something like the SARS coronavirus, the original one, something that we already know causes disease in humans. Um, Interestingly enough, though, the bat uh, virus this is most closely related to 
it doesn't actually seem to cause disease in humans. So that makes it a really weird kind of virus to use as your backbone. Why would you think that that would become more uh, dangerous or uh, be a good virus to infect humans if that's what you were going for? So the way that uh, the kind of grubby uh, fingerprints that you would expect to see if you were using a virus like this anyway as a backbone, if you were genetically manipulating it, is... For starters, you don't just make sweeping changes across the genome. You just basically pick specific regions and then you make those mutations and those changes as you go. What you'd have at the end, if this was a, a man-made uh, virus, is that you'd have an original virus backbone that you started with and then you'd have some mutations in specific regions to make it more dangerous. It doesn't look like in this instance that that's happened. It doesn't look like it's come from any of the existing backbones that we've sequenced. We can't see anything like that. It just seems like basically... This is a pretty unlikely candidate that you'd base your weapon on if you're a scientist aiming to make a deadly and very infectious virus. Yeah, and I think that that's something that when I was looking a few weeks back at the role of wet markets uh, potentially in the spread of this virus or in the zoonosis jumping species, uh, virologists were kind of of the opinion that, you know, it may not have begun at the wet markets, but, you know, with the technology and research, we might be able to trace it uh, further back maybe to rural or regional farms in the greater region of Wuhan. Uh, so there, th those theories did seem quite strong um, at that time. Uh, but Ruby, what if you took another virus, uh, if we go down the synthetic uh, theory uh, and you were able to, you know, turbocharge its evolution in a lab, could it be that you could speed up that evolution process to make a deadly virus and somehow leave no trace of human involvement? Or is that just absurd? No, that's absolutely something that scientists do at the moment. They have a, a thing called simulated natural selection and they can get a virus and they can speed it up and sort of uh, exert these kind of uh, evolutionary pressures on a virus to force it to mutate pretty quickly. So when you do that, what you get is a virus that's mutating quite quickly um, and some mutations will occur and some won't occur, but you don't really know which ones the virus will keep and which ones it won't. So it makes it quite tricky to sort of, I guess, push it in a certain direction to gain certain uh, mutations that would help, but not drop off other ones if that's what you wanted. So um, there's another interesting kind of thing that's happened in this. Um, which is that, you know, how we talked about the, the sugar molecules on the spike protein, um, they're actually a big indicator as to why scientists don't think that this could be a part of this, you know, turbocharged lab-based evolution because those sugar molecules only really evolve when the virus is exposed to a real immune system and the viruses are trying to evolve to sort of hide and protect themselves from an immune system. And so far, there's no indication that that can be done in a lab. It, it can't be done sort of in cells that are cultured in a lab, really outside of a virus being exposed to animals or humans and basically just, you know, quickly evolving and trying to survive. And there's also, <laughs> there's also this other part of that, which is that, even if you, if you were trying to get these uh, mutations and you were trying to figure out uh, or, or trying to rapidly evolve it to get a certain type of mutation, um, some of these things like the, the spike protein on this, it, it doesn't at all look like what you would want from a virus. So 
there are computer models that sort of look at, uh, suggest a mutation in a virus and they go, okay, this might be really good for, you know, helping the virus uh, be transmitted or this might be really deadly. Computer models can do that. But in this instance, some of the things that are on the virus actually are something that computer models could have never predicted would make it so effective in humans. So, for example, the spike protein um, and the way it interacts with the ACE2 receptor, it does it fantastically well and the opposite of what a computer model would suggest. <laughs> if you, you look at this in a computer model, it says this would actually be a terrible design for it. So any virologist out there who's looking at computer models and saying, let me try and find uh, a spike protein, a, a bit of gene that's going to uh, mutate a gene and it's going to make it really good, you would have never come up with this specific design. That's super interesting. Um, so basically the steps that a bioengineer would have to have followed in order to intentionally create the coronavirus um, would have been completely illogical. Like they just would never have gone down that path. Um, but it's really good to see there's some detective work being done in this area. Um, we're going to blow apart all those conspiracy theories that have nothing to back them up. But I mean, it will probably never silence the conspiracy theorists that are out there. Yeah, no, it probably won't. <laughs> but um, for anyone who's seriously concerned about bioterrorism, uh, at least it will put this debate on ice. Um, well, thank you so much, Ruby. That was super interesting. And it's really good to hear you explain it because just reading through your feature, I was like, oh, yeah, this is super interesting. But it's easier to get my head around it when I hear you talk it through. <laughs> um, so thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Medical Republic podcast, a program for curious GPs. I'm Felicity Nelson. You can contact me at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. And you can send tips and conspiracy theories to ruby at medicalrepublic.com.au. You can CC me in as well. I conspiracy theories. <laughs> and you can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or iTunes or whatever podcatcher you prefer. Thanks for listening. Bye.